You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark 9, 14-29 And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he said to them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Casey, and uh, I saw a lot of you guys this morning uh, on the Zoom call and, uh, with uh, David about Fetier. And uh, man, if you made time for that, uh, man, thank you so much for making time for that. The questions were great. And just a, a reminder uh, about that, um, you know, uh, and some clarification on that. You know, it's very specific uh, what we're trying to raise $250,000 for. Um, and so we're, it's not just us, it's going to be some other churches and people really all over. But we're trying to raise $250,000 uh, specifically to help them buy the church building that they're uh, renting right now to help them secure citizenship. And so that means a a couple things. That means, one, we haven't set an end date for that, uh, but there will be an end date, and we're we're watching that because if it doesn't look like we're going to reach that amount, uh, we're just going to hit the refund button and send all those gifts back uh, because it's for something very, very specific. We're trying to secure a place of worship and therefore securing their place uh, in the country as citizens of Turkey. And so uh, some questions that came up that were just great uh, were kind of about, you know, what do we do, you know, with this? And then we're asking you to share that information with people that you think would be interested, uh, that if they want to talk to someone, if there's other churches that you know, man, we would love to get before them and just try to share the story and talk about the need. Um, And that it would feel like, uh, man, just a a blessing that we get to uh, partner with them like this. And I've actually, I also want to say this, man, I've been blown away uh, by your all's generosity and, and quickness uh, to give. And I know there's several other people that have said, hey, I'm going to give, we just haven't given yet. And we're asking, do that sooner than later, um, just so we can kind of gauge where we are. 
Uh, but if you're already given or you're still praying about that, keep praying about that. And, and we're so thankful about that. Um, in this passage, like we, we have a lot of things converging. And, and for us, sometimes in the modern mind, like we want to explain some things away. Like, like, what do we do, and it's all through the scriptures, what do we do when the Bible plainly talks about spiritual warfare? And I, I'm going to contend to you that we believe it. That, that we believe that spiritual warfare is tightly interwoven within our flesh. It's tightly all around us. It's in thoughts and ideas. That it's a voice that we hear all the time that causes accusation of our soul. That causes us to doubt who we are in Christ. That pr- produces a timidity in us or produces an over like push or a flexing for us where we don't look to Jesus. Like, what do we do when we see something that right here, you know, we see some symptoms that look very epileptic, but we see Jesus handle it very spiritually. And I'm going to tell you, like, I think we take the Bible at face value and we say both of those exist. When um, Kenzie and I were, were first married, uh, like the transition for her was, was huge. You know, I, I, I transitioned to Weatherford, Western Oklahoma, uh, I lacked nine hours to graduate, but they were nine hours of anything, you know. And so I, uh, I took three hours of uh, an upper-level economics class, so I get my minor economics. I don't know anything about economics, um, but I've got a minor in it. And then I took three hours of ropes course and three hours of scuba diving. I mean, nine hours of anything, and so we were dating, uh, really had just started dating, we moved out there, and it was about a year and a half later, we were married, and uh, that transition uh, for us wasn't really smooth. You know, you know Kinsey left, I mean, she was, a, a, she was a college girl at the University of Oklahoma, uh, she was well known, you know, I mean, she had lots of friends, and she was well known, and she moved out to western Oklahoma to be my wife, which I thought, that's probably a pretty good deal, you know, but when she moved out there... Man, there were expectations placed upon her. Some by others, probably some by just her, you know. There were a lot of fears. It was more lonely. Um, Like, I I would be gone sometimes. And so by expectations and just loneliness and, you know, looking back and seeing where friends do, like, there was a sense of, like, loss. And when we would talk about it, like, I would get really scared. Like, what, you don't want to be married to me? Am I not enough? And the look that would be in her eye was like, yeah, I don't know if you're enough. It wasn't a really smooth transition. I mean, I remember like some desperation kind of growing. I'm, I remember at one point um, going to my pastor's office and sitting down with him, which I was really common. He was very pastoral and just saying like, hey, you tell me to put Kinsey first. And we're like crying all the time. And when I say we, it was a lot of times it was her, and I was just like desperate, like I didn't know what to do. I'm like, do you want to buy a puppy? And we did buy a puppy, you know. I was just scared. And I mean, trying to convey that to my pastor, he kind of went really proverbial. He kind of said, hey, if you're not happy where you are, you'll never be happy. And I was like, that is not helpful now. And I just said real plainly, I'm asking you, when do I quit? Like I was scared. You know, one of the nights in particular, it was really shortly after that. Actually, after I said that, um, Earl, as my pastor, he just said, let's just pray. And uh, he just bowed and we, his head and we just prayed. And I left pretty unconvinced that that was very helpful. 
Um, and it wasn't too many nights after that. Man, we just had this night. It was really, really tough. Um, and, uh, I mean, Kenzie was just sad and just like, I don't know where I belong. I mean, I, I see how you belong here. People know you, but they don't know me. Where do I belong? And just crying. And I just kind of had this thought of like, man, screw it. Maybe we should just pray. Like, I know you're like, man, our pastor, finally, pray. And man, I, we just started praying, and we, I got a little charismatic. Like, I was just kind of casting stuff out, because I didn't know what else to do. And I was just asking, Jesus, if you don't come through, like, if your promises, if you're not enough, if you're not here, I don't know what we have. I, I don't know what else to turn. I feel like I've tried to think through this in every way. And like, if you ask Kinsey about that night, when we got done, you know, after you get done with that, it's like, okay, so what do we do now? You want to watch a movie? I mean, you get done. Like she would say this, she would say, the room felt different. I would tell you this, she felt different. What do we do when we feel gripping evil that comes at the very identity of who you are? Like, do you belong here? Is there a place for you? Or are you just other? Are you never going to fit in? What's your solution for spiritual darkness? That's what Mark 9 is, is really all about. That, that, that's what Mark 9, like, it's trying to ask, like, the question, and I want us just to relate. Have you ever just felt darkness either inside of you or around you? Has there ever been something that you felt like just gripped your life? Like, you tried to reason your way out of it. You tried to, like, talk yourself out of, like, tough talk. You tried to get help, but it just felt like something was hanging on to you. Like, do you consider that when we read things in the Bible, and it's, it's, it's asking us to ask Jesus to step in. Would you ever consider that that might be the solution for you? You know, in this, we see the picture of um, the disciples leaving the mountain of transfiguration and they're walking down. And in the valleys below, what we find is a really difficult situation. And I think sometimes that picture is helpful. Like sometimes when we feel like the grip of brokenness or, or the grip of darkness upon our life or just like the, like the view of God is too far away, we wonder if the God of the mountaintop, can he actually see to where I am? Is he aware? Does he know? Can he even reach where I am? You know, I think the question is when you see brokenness, what do you do? Like, I mean, I, I think we would say, like, sometimes there's an education problem, like, like certainly, but what happens when education doesn't fix it? Or, or sometimes we look to it and we, we say things like, maybe it's not that, maybe I just need, like, to be more disciplined, and so we start to work out, like, that's going to fix it. We think, man, discipline and abs, surely that'll fix it. I mean, those approaches, like, I, I don't want to be, those actually get us things like eating disorders, you know, I can't deal with what's gripping my life out there, but I can deal with what I put inside of my body. Or, 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 or like cutting, like we work with students a lot, we dealt with a lot of students who were cutting. I can't deal with that pain, but I can start and stop this pain. We start to look for solutions that we can control, and we start to have control, and then we get frustrated when the gripping presence in our life doesn't, it doesn't let go. You know, when we look at this, um, 
I'm going to ask you to see, like, where do you see yourself in this? Uh, Raphael's last painting, it was actually of this, the Transfiguration. And if, if you can look at it, you can even look it up on your phone right now, but don't watch baseball, okay? If you look up on your phone, I'll know if you're watching baseball. But, you know, his picture, Raphael, at the very top, you see the top of the mountain, and Jesus is floating, and there's like the Shekinah glory of God, and you have Elijah, and you have Moses, and beneath them you have Peter, James, and John, and they are terrified. But then on down the mountain, you get to this really dark scene where you've got the scribes and the Pharisees, and there's full of rage, and they're all pointing fingers, and you've got this woman right in the middle, which she's not mentioned in the text, but she's calmly pointing over to a boy who is obviously not right, and holding that boy is a desperate father. He puts these two pictures together in a way that I think they should be placed together. The mountaintops of God, they're important, but what do they do when we get to the valleys of life that feel broken? And so in Mark 9, Peter, James, and John, they've just come off the mountain. And there's this theological discussion as they're coming down. They're saying, hey, Jesus, why does Elijah have to come first? Or they say, you know, talking among themselves, you know, what does Jesus mean by this rising from the dead? And they're asking all of these theological questions on the way down. And then when they get to the scene beneath them, they see discord. They see frustration. They see disappointment when it's not working like it used to work. And they see brokenness and desperation. And so in this, I just want to point at three things. And so three things I want to point at. First off, I want to point at at the grip of evil that we see here. I want to ask, do you see it anywhere else? And then the second thing, I want to point at the attempts to solve what they see. I want to point at what we see here. How do they try to solve it? And I want to ask the question, do we try to solve it the same way? And then the third thing, if our attempts don't work, what does work? And we're going to look at that. And so first... The, the grip of evil. First off, I just want to say this text, like Mark talks about the grip of evil, like it is real, that it is self-evident that we should look at it, that it hides and it's multifaceted. Like he talks about it like it's normal. There's no like discussion where he just says, hey, let me just kind of explain how all this works. He just says it was right there before us. We saw it. We saw its grip and Jesus dealt with it. Like we start with the grip of evil. Look at verse 16. In verse 16 it says this, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone in the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And it has often cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. Like, paints this really difficult, dark uh, picture. And, like, let's just ask the question, like, is this physical or, or is this spiritual? And so, like, first, like, physical. Like, I'm not a doctor, but it sounds pretty epileptic. Like, we see seizing and we see throwing and uncontrollable, rigid fits. And so, like, we see that picture before us, but it also, like, Jesus answers it pretty spiritually. Like, like look at what we see, like, in verse 22. We see taking opportunities to like hurt the boy further. Like we see in verse 20, you back up a little bit, like it, when Jesus gets near him, he convulses more, seemingly to try to say, man, we don't want any of Jesus around here. Or look at verse 25, like if we looked at verse 25 to 29, which we will, it, it, it's handled, like Jesus handles it spiritually. 
And so like right there, you're like, so what, what are you saying? Is it physical or, or is it emotional or, or is it spiritual? And like, I just want to ask this question. What if most of our problems are a mixed bag of all of those things? What if like our humanity is so deeply intertwined with our brokenness and our chemicals and our experiences and our bodies and we know bodies don't work the way they always are supposed to work. Like you get sick. Or you get older and you realize like you used to be able to tell your body to do things and now when you say body do that, it says you better not. Like what if it was a mixed bag of physical, emotional, and spiritual? What if sin has broken the physical and emotional world and so now our bodies break down and we don't even feel the way we should about what we see? What if it's broken in such a way that events happen to us and we bring up the wrong interpretations of why they happen to us and it starts to give us an identity language about us because that's what we deserve or because God doesn't love us or it attacks the character of God? What if it's all merged in in a way that's hard for us to decipher what's what? What if... What if the way the Bible describes demonic activity is real? What if it has a different vantage point and it has watched you and it has watched your dad's 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 dad and it knows just where you might be frail and the terminology that it uses to describe is footholds, filling your heart with lies, a gripping power upon your life. What if Satan's name of the accuser of the brethren that we see in the scriptures, what if it's right? What if that language that you hear in your head that says, man, hey, don't take that to God's people. They won't love you or don't show that part of your life. Even though we have like Ephesians 4 that says, whatever we hold up to light becomes visible and what is visible becomes light itself. What if that doubt in your heart isn't you at all? What if it's merged in What if the moments when Jesus is extra presence, calling people to him, what if there's something that grips your life that says, don't listen to that? In um, C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters, um, there's a moment where your little under demon's talking to like the general demon. Um, and uh, you know the general demon, he starts to describe, he's like, hey, listen, I know what that's like. And he starts to describe one of his patients, so one of his people that he was constantly trying to keep away from the grace of God. And he says, man, I've been working on him for 20 years. And all of a sudden he was in a museum and he was looking at art and he started to contemplate death and life. And he started to wonder, what was this all for? Is there an eternity? Does it matter? Is there a God? And he realized all of my 20 years of work on this patient could be for nothing. So he says, I didn't bring an argument about about the existence of God. I didn't bring an argument about is Jesus real or is he not real. I took hold of the part of his life that I had the firmest grip. I took hold of his appetite and I reminded him, man, you don't want to talk about important things on an empty stomach. So he walked out of the museum and never thought about it again. What if demonic activity is like that? Seizing the opportunity when you get too close to Jesus. Not wanting to contemplate, who is Jesus for me in my life? What if the Bible talked about demonic, <laughs> demonic, 
that was almost like denomination and demonic. Um, what if the Bible talked about demonic possession with phrases like opportunities and footholds in Ephesians 4.27? Or filling your heart with lies in Acts chapter 5, verse 3? Or roots of bitterness that spring up and grow with ease in Hebrews 12.15? Or what if Satan was just really good at bringing unconscious lies and accusations that we feel like they're actually interpreting ourselves? What if that was the best way to describe the gripping evil that we see all around us? Like, what if in Ephesians 6, for we don't just wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and rulers and authorities? Have you considered that? So the first thing that it just asks us to look at Do you see a grip of evil either upon your life or upon others? Because this passage is describing such a thing. The the second thing is our attempts to deal with this. And so actually I'm just going to back up to verse 14 and I'm going to read through verse 18. And I just want to kind of paint the picture. And so like our attempts to deal with this, what we see is it brings like disarray and accusations and further suffering. Like look at verse 14. It says, and when, when they came to the disciples, and so Peter, James, and John, and Jesus coming down the mountain, coming to the other disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. And the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowds, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him, Jesus, and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about? And they said, someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able and so just real fast, like, who is here? Like, like, we see the disciples, and we see the scribes, and we see crowds, and we see a family that's really hurting, and we see people just wondering what's going to go on. And so let's describe some of these people. And so first, we see scribes, and they're here pointing fingers and offering little, uh, making little offer to help. And so in the New Testament, the scribes are sometimes called lawyers, or they're sometimes called teachers of the law. In essence, they started off as copyists. And meaning like they just copy the scriptures word for word. And like if you copy something word for word long enough, you become an expert about the contents. And so they became experts about what the Bible said of the Old Testament. And so they would just write it out over and over and over. And so at the time of Jesus, this became much more formalized. And so this would start about age 14. If you became a scribe or a teacher of the law, you would just start copying the Old Testament. It ended about age 40, and then at age 40, you could decide if you wanted to kind of go into the judge side of things to determine what's right and wrong, or into the rabbi side of things to like teach. And so like this is a long life. Like these are people who've done a lot of study, and here they are, like you can kind of see it. Like, the the scribes' error was in some ways they were more religious and technical than God. Like, everything was nuanced. They were questions about what was right and wrong. Everything, when it came to something physical, kind of went more philosophical. Like, hey, if you were suffering, man, it's it's probably just your fault. Like you probably don't believe right or you probably don't see right or, or you're probably not putting the right kind of effort in. 
like the first people we see, we see the scribes. The second is we see the disciples doing what they had done before, but they were getting desperate because it wasn't working. Like if you read in Mark 6, what you see is Jesus has sent them out two by two to go out to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, and to cast out demons, and it worked. And they're trying to do the same thing, the same experience, the same technique, what they had done before, but it wasn't working. And then we might just ask this question, like, seeing the brokenness that's there, how is this going? Like, how is it going? And the answer is going terrible. Like, are are they working together? Does it feel like they have a common enemy or an agreed plan to stop? And the answer is no way. Like, they don't. They're pointing fingers at one another. The scribes hate Jesus. So they're, like, taking this opportunity to say, you guys, you disciples, you guys are a bunch of charlatans just like Jesus. He's the big charlatan. That's why it's not working. And you've got the disciples, and they're definitely pointing the fingers back and probably yelling back and saying, you guys are a bunch of nerds. Why don't you go write some Bible verses down before we give you, like, a wedgie or something? I mean, there's chaos. They definitely agree that there's a problem and that problem needs to be stopped. But they're just pointing fingers at how do we stop it? What you say doesn't work. What you say doesn't work. You know, like an honest moment of reflection, we just ask this, like, hey, are you more like a scribe putting all your faith and information about God, quick to criticize philosophical undergirdings of someone's belief when they suffer, or are you more like a forgetful disciple that presses into like, man, we've always done it this way, or this is the right way to do it, and this is what we should do, and it's not working now, wondering what's going on. Like Mark 9 is telling us that knowledge and experience can render us Christless. And look, Jesus is pretty frustrated about it. Look at verse 19. It says this, it says, And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Like, Jesus is noticeably kind of frustrated. And like, just kind of looking at this, like, I just had the realization, I think I frustrate Jesus a lot. Like, I think sometimes I frustrate the snot out of Jesus. Like, it makes me think back. This was several years ago. We had a yogurt uh, catastrophe, and uh, my kids decided to help. I mean, they caused it, so they decided to help it, and so they were just wiping it up on the floor without asking for help, and really, they were just kind of pushing it into the cracks of the wooden floor, and like coming, seeing the effort, seeing all that, but it wasn't working, and as we used fingernails and toothpicks to clean everything, like, just the thought and the picture of that. Why didn't they come to me first? Like the thought and the picture of this is we're trying to handle darkness without Jesus. Like I am certain I frustrate Jesus. I'm also certain that the love that God has for me runs deeper than his frustration. Like if you look at this picture... Like Jesus expresses frustration, but he doesn't walk away, he enters in. Or if you look at the picture of the cross, like the cross was for God's glory, but it was also for my good. Like Jesus stayed, like he didn't walk away. And so his grace and his love runs deeper. The first things that we see in this passage, we see a gripping evil. And we see attempts to deal with it without Jesus. Does this passage offer any hope? 
what can I bring that works? And we see it. Like, what can defeat evil? And it actually shows us an honest, vulnerable faith in Jesus can stop it. Like, or another way to say it, if the gripping evil in my life and lives around me can't be fixed through information or my experience and my wisdom, what can I bring? And the answer is the exact kind of faith that we see in the boy's father. Like, let's just kind of build. Before we get there, look at verse 21. And so we kind of see how Jesus enters in. It says, And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fires or into water to destroy him. And so, like, if you actually just see this, like, everyone was kind of, like, saying, your way doesn't work. This will never work. This isn't right. And Jesus silenced it, and he actually says, hey, I actually want to hear the story of the people who are suffering. Like, in the chaos of what will fix this, the people who are suffering were just kind of drowned out. And Jesus silences it, says, tell me your story. In verse 22, You know, the boy's father asks, he says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And look what Jesus, and Jesus said, if you can, like he looks at Jesus in the desperation. He said, I came here for help and no one is helping. And he says, can you help? And Jesus says, can I help? Like I'm Jesus. But look at this, like the answer is like, of course I can. And so in essence, like, he kind of had poor theology. He didn't say, I know you can help me. Will you help me? He says, if you can help. I came here for help. I'm not getting any help. I don't know if there is help. Jesus, can you even help me? And Jesus says, can I help you? And then look what he does in verse 23. It goes on. He says, all things are possible for the one who believes. See right there, that's kind of what I felt like, like when, 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 my, when my pastor Earl, when he kind of went proverbial and kind of like, hey, if you're not happy where you are, you'll never be happy anywhere. Like Jesus kind of does the same thing. He says, listen, faith is of essence. Do you believe? He kind of puts it back on him. And look at the desperation that comes out of him. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Verse 25, and when Jesus saw that the crowd was running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him, never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. Like Jesus responded to the man's honest and vulnerable faith, I do believe, but I have lots of doubt. Like, that, that phrase, this guy is the guy I relate to the most. I, I, I believe, but I've got lots of doubts. I, I, I'm not for sure. Like, I, I know enough to look at you. Like, we would ask questions like, how much belief does it take? Like, do you have to have more belief than doubts? And the answer would be no. Or do you need a lot just to convince Jesus to come down the mountain to see you? Or if you have serious doubts, do you need to, like, tough talk yourself so that you can come with, like, a more pure faith so that Jesus might take you serious? And the answer is no. We don't see any of that. We see a scared dad who gets really, really honest and says, I have some faith. I don't know if it's enough. You know, Jesus' action tells us what he's already told us in like Matthew 17, that it just takes just a little bit. 
it just takes enough faith that you actually look at Jesus. You actually look maybe away from your experience or your wisdom or you look away from like just perfect knowledge and all those things. And like, listen, like I, 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 I'm a big fan of theology. Like them walking down the mountain talking about theology, like, like give me some Grudem, you know, I'll pass on Erickson. I mean, give me some Horton. I mean, I'm a big fan of theology, but I think the question is like, is the theology that you bring does it actually help the suffering in the valley? Or do you start to give an idea off of like, hey, once you fix your life, you can join our theological debate up here. Like Jesus isn't saying that's not important. He's saying, do you have enough faith to look to me? The key is not the depth of faith, but the direction of our faith. What, what is important is not the power of our faith, but the person of our faith. A little faith in a great Jesus, gets miraculous results. And so then look at verse 27. But Jesus took him, took the boy by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. Like literally it says Jesus raised him and he was resurrected. Like the contrast, a gripping evil that wants to keep you away and push you down, a reaching Lord that reaches in to raise up. Honest faith voices all the fears and doubt. It's not afraid to say what my limitations are. Saving faith looks to Jesus with what's real, what's all of that. And then we get an explanation, verse 28. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? I mean, the question kind of betrays it. Why could we not do it? What were we doing wrong? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, th th people get weird on this. I mean, people start to think, okay, so like, we got categories. Like we've got some spirits and you know spiritual problems that we need to like just kind of voice something and we've got some that we need to pray and we've got some that maybe we need to do something you know a little bit more hocus pocus. And I don't think that's what's being said at here. I mean, it's not like saying, okay, so this spiritual problem is kind of green and slimy. Oh man, it's slimer. We gotta call the Ghostbusters, not Jesus. I mean, I don't think it's saying that at all. I think what it's saying is this kind refers to all spiritual conflict. I think he's, not, he's saying, listen, anytime you enter in to accusation or lies that start to come at the person of God to say, man, God doesn't care. He would never let you be in this situation. He would never let this happen. Can you really trust him? Do just what seems right to you. Don't wait upon him. I think he's saying, all spiritual activity, we got to look to Jesus. We have to pray. See, Jesus is saying what was just spoken over him on the top of the mountain, you know, where it said, this is my son, listen to him. He's saying, look at Jesus as authoritative and run to him. You just need enough faith that says, man, I think Jesus actually has answers for me. Mark 9, it says, man, evil is present. And we see a lot of people confused about what to do, but Mark takes the existence of spiritual activity as a real fact. Like, just a question. Is the Bible authoritative when it doesn't seem right to you? 
What if? What if spiritual activity had been watching you and your parents and your parents' parents and your parents' parents? And what if the description of footholds and gripping was right? And it would speak the almost unconscious lies that you believe more true about yourself and more true about this world and more true about sin and more true about the person of God than any conscious thought you would ever bring up. What if you need a gazing look at Jesus says, what do you say about me? Do you have authority here? See, this says you don't need unbelievable faith when you're looking to an unbelievable Savior. And we actually see that when we come to communion. Like, think about communion for a second. What, what do you bring to communion? Like, like, you don't, it's not a bring your own lunch. It's provided for you. It's not like bring, you know, something. You don't pay for it. You don't bring money to say, now give me the bread or, or give me the wine. It's provided for you. It's laid out before you. And all you bring is you. And if that you sounds a whole lot like this, Dad, like I do have some faith, but I know I've got lots of doubts and I've got lots of insecurities and I've got lots of questions, but I have enough right now to look at you and say this, what we say every week. We take the bread and we say, I put my hope in the broken body of Jesus, that he was broken, that the Spirit of God might enter in to make me whole. Or we take the cup and we say, I put my hope in the blood of Jesus, that it was poured out for my life, and I believe it was enough even when I have doubt." And then we come to Jesus in prayer. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, Lord, give us saving faith. You know, actually, when I think about desperate moments of my life, when I have this incredible pastoral thought, maybe I should pray about this. But I am so sorry that I run to information that I've collected, good information about the scriptures that are important, or that, that I run to experiences that I've had or wisdom that I have before I just say, Jesus, I need you. If I don't have the promises of God and the faithfulness of God, I have nothing. I believe that's the kind of faith that Jesus wants to step into. And so just a moment of reflection a moment of reflection might be, am I more like the scribes that get real technical, maybe more technical than God himself? Or maybe am I more like the, the disciples who just kind of forgot that they need to include Jesus in all of this? Or do I identify with a desperate boy in pain or a desperate dad with someone they love in pain? And I'm just coming and I'm just saying, can anyone help? Is my faith enough, even if it's riddled with doubts? Lord Jesus, I pray that you give us just the courage to ask all of those questions. And Lord, where we're just tired, we would find encouragement. And Lord, where we're wounded, we would find healing. And Lord, where we're just being sinful, we would find rebuke and correction and restoration. 
Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.